Hey everybody, if you are a writer or an aspiring writer, or if you just love literature, I have a book for you. It's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories. It is the long-awaited craft book by Steve Almond, based on three decades of his writing career, a career that has featured at turns depression, failure, anxiety, self-loathing, despair, self-doubt, loss of faith, delusions of grandeur, and the occasional triumph. It's a book about the writing life. Steve Almond has done it. He has embraced it, the full catastrophe, and he has lived to tell about it. The Boston Globe says, quote, this isn't just a book about writing. It's a book about honesty. And Richard Russo calls it, quote, one of the best books on writing I've ever read. It's also the funniest by a country mile. Once again, it's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories by Steve Almond, available from Zando. Go get your copy right now, wherever you buy books. Hey everybody, how are you? Welcome to the Other People Podcast. I'm Brad Listy and I'm in Los Angeles. How are you? I have a Sunday episode for you. Dennis Cooper is back on the program. He guested a decade ago. It's hard to believe that much time has gone by. He was one of my earliest guests. And he is making a triumphant return celebrating the publication of a novel called I Wished. Available now from Soho Press. Critics are hailing I Wished as Dennis Cooper's most intimate work. The word naked is getting thrown around a lot in descriptions of this book I have noticed. Nakedly intimate, that sort of thing. It's a fascinating novel of self-exploration and creative diagnosis or like diagnosing... why he, like he's diagnosing why he's lived his life the way that he has and why he's made the art that he has among other things and he's just delightful we had such a good time talking and that is coming up in just a moment Dennis Cooper is the author of the George Miles cycle an interconnected sequence of five novels those are called Closer Frisk, Try, Guide, and Period. His other works include My Loose Thread, The Sluts, which won the, uh, the Prisad in France, and the Lambda Literary Award, a book called God Jr., Wrong, The Dream Police, Ugly Man, and The Marbled Swarm. I spoke with Dennis... Over the transom, he was at his home in Paris, where he spends most of his time. He is also a filmmaker. He directs with Zach Farley and has a couple of films out. One is called Permanent Green Light, and another is called Light Cattle Towards Glow. And there's another in the offing that you're going to hear us talk about. So, Dennis Cooper and I in just a moment. The Other People podcast is offered freely. Did you know that? The entire archive of this show is available free. More than 700 episodes, hundreds and hundreds of hours of content. 
in-depth conversations with uh, all kinds of authors, all available to you for free. If you like the show, if you listen, if you get something from it, if you have the means, you can support this program for as little as $1 a month over at patreon.com slash other PPL pod. That's patreon, P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com slash other PPL pod. There are different tiers, different levels of support. As you move up the scale, you can get stuff, a, a coffee mug, a sticker, a t-shirt, a tote bag, a book club subscription. I will write you a postcard by hand. I will wish you a happy birthday. Patreon.com slash other PPL pod. Hey, everybody. If you are a writer or an aspiring writer, or if you just love literature, I have a book for you. It's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories. It is the long-awaited craft book by Steve Almond, based on three decades of his writing career, a career that has featured at turns depression, failure, anxiety, self-loathing, despair, self-doubt, loss of faith, delusions of grandeur, and the occasional triumph. It's a book about the writing life. Steve Almond has done it. He has embraced it, the full catastrophe, and he has lived to tell about it. The Boston Globe says, quote, this isn't just a book about writing. It's a book about honesty. And Richard Russo calls it, quote, one of the best books on writing I've ever read. It's also the funniest by a country mile. Once again, it's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories by Steve Almond, available from Zando. Go get your copy right now, wherever you buy books. So Thanksgiving is coming up. There will be an episode on Wednesday of this week. There will not be an episode next Sunday, just so you know. It's the holiday weekend. I'm taking some time off. I hope that's okay. But do look for another episode in a couple of days on Wednesday. And then I'll be off for the Thanksgiving weekend and back at it the following week. All right? So let's get to today's conversation. Let's just get there. Dennis Cooper is the guest. His new novel, again, is called I Wished, available from Soho Press. Such a pleasure to talk with Dennis. Great to have him back on the program. He is one of our finer writers and also one of our finer advocates for literature, and in particular literature that emerges on the periphery. So I have great affection for him in that way. He's been championing uh, a lot of work that doesn't get championed by the mainstream press or the literary establishment. And we need people like that. So here we go. This is my conversation with Dennis Cooper and his new book, One More Time, is called I Wished. George Miles was this kid. I met him when I was 15 and he was 12. And he was the younger brother of a good friend of mine. Uh, we were in a band together. And um, there was this dance at school. They had sometimes at our school. And he came up to me and he said, my little brother's on, took LSD. And he's like freaking out. 
and I had taken a lot of LSD and was sort of famous for having taken a lot of LSD. So he asked me to go talk him down. So I went and I spent like a couple, two, three hours with this kid, George, and um, sort of like seeing him through his trip. And we bonded and we became really close friends, even though we had such a strange age difference. So then we just were immediately like extremely, extremely close friends for. And uh, he was a really uh, super brilliant, super bizarre, lovely kid just just kind of like adorable and everybody thought that he was just amazing but then when he got a little older kind of like when he hit, well, i guess he'd already hit puberty but when he got a little older maybe 13 14 he's he, he got very very bad bipolar disorder and became really divided into like person who was either depressed or manic and it just got it was just really bad and it kind of stayed that way for a long time but i and we stayed friends through all of that it was rough but we did, and um, and he tried to kill himself, and he went into he tried to, he was in you know lots of therapies, and he became religious fanatic. He tried everything he could sort of to make himself feel better, but it didn't really work. So then we just continued to be friends for a very very long time, and uh, he was like in love with me, but he was a little kid, so I was not you know I was like that's really moving and touching, but I can't feel that way about you. And he kept kind of pressing that all through the years. And eventually I did fall in love with him. But by then he was 18 and I was whatever, 20, 20 or 21. And so um, we started a relationship, but then it got broken off because he went to a different college than I did. And eventually we, in the early 80s, we became friends and with also a kind of physical component to it. And then um, but he got worse and worse and worse and worse. And um, he became psychotic and eventually it was very difficult to be with friends with him and he, i i moved to amsterdam and and while i was in amsterdam he killed himself he'd tried to kill himself a number of times and i didn't know about it for for 10 years and i wrote those books for him because he knew i was right i told him i was going to write these books for him because he was really really probably the most he was the most important person to me i really adored him so I wrote these books thinking they, you know, they were for him and that he would be reading them and stuff. But then I found out after I'd written the fourth one, just after I'd published it, that he had killed himself 10 years before. Okay. So, so yeah. just to interject, like the, the books that you're referring to are the George Miles cycle. Right. right. So it's Closer, Frisk, Try, Guide, and Period. Those are the, exactly. the titles of the books. And I think the, the, it's the body of work that you are most known for. Yeah, I mean, I, I suppose that would be the case. But I want to go backwards a little bit <laughs> just to place place you in time. You talk about doing LSD and kind of being known for having taken a lot of LSD. You yeah. met George when he was 12 and on LSD. Yeah. That's quite young yeah. to be taking LSD. Yeah, no. <laughs> and, and, what, and also, like, what year? Because historically, like, I mean, you must have been among the first teenagers to be taking LSD, right? Uh... It didn't. I mean, it was it was a pretty well known drug, and my friends and all I took acid all the time. Um, so I guess it was already had already filtered into high schools and things like that because it wasn't it wasn't that strange. What year was this though? This was the nineteen oh, sixties. No, yeah, it would have been like um, let me see, I would have been like sixty eight or something, nineteen sixty eight. Okay. So I mean, you know, we were listening to the Velvet Underground and Pink Floyd and all that stuff. So I mean. I mean, it wasn't like everybody did it, but the cool people were were taking LSD as well as you know, smoking pot and all that stuff. So it was unusual. I mean, it was I don't know how George 
ended up on LSD. His older brother was like, a, you know, was a freak and took LSD and was in a band. So maybe he just did it because his brother did it. I, re- you know, I think back on uh, psychedelic experiences in my youth and how bonded they made me feel to my friends. The bonds that I continue to feel to this day. It's like a, yeah. I, I joke that it's like a shared trauma. You know, <laughs> like you just sort of. Yeah. I, I'm just curious to know if you think of it that way with regard to the bond that you feel and the affection that you feel um, for George, both like while he was alive and then also after his death. Well, maybe, I mean, he didn't take LSD again. (laughs) Um, Well, as far as I know, I mean, he did smoke a lot of pot and, and hash and stuff. Um, I mean, with him specifically, I mean, I know what you mean about friends. I mean, I have all these friends that I was friends with and, High school, and I'm still friends with some of them, and and yeah, we were very very tight, and and you're you're right about that, about kind of going on that exploration together, and also like being an idiot together, and being like ridiculously profound together, and all those embarrassing things. But with George, it was just because I think it was just because he he was so lost and everything, and I actually just sat with him, you know, and I think. And, you know, he was asking me when, when he was on LSD, I mean, I didn't realize that he was having serious mental problems or, or biological problems or whatever. And he kept saying, am I insane? And I kept saying, no, you're just on LSD. And he's like, no, I don't mean right now. I mean, I'm, am I insane all the time? And I'm like, I don't know. I just, <laughs> <you> know? <laughs> right. right. But he was, he got very deep with me and he wasn't a person that was very open. He, he, he kept a lot to himself. He didn't trust anybody because people would like, suddenly be his friend and then he'd go become manic or something and then they'd stop being his friend so so i think it was just that it opened him up so much and we had such an incredibly deep conversation about you know whatever i'm sure we talked about the sky and the stars and all that boring stuff too but that um so in that case it it op- i i don't know that we would have bonded like that if it wasn't if we hadn't gone through that together right and uh, you know he is i think it's safe to say he's like your muse is that a way that you think of him uh, I think it might be an easy shorthand way to understand him. He's inspired so many books that you've written. Uh, yeah, yeah. I mean, he's pretty. He was. He was extreme. Yeah, I think so. I mean, I think. I mean, he's only. I mean, the first five books. Those books are for him, and the others aren't. But he's. He's somehow always at the center of things for me. And you know, I mean, I. I wrote this book because I wanted the new book because I wanted to write something really, really, really personal because I'd never done it before. I'd never written about myself before. And it, and I had to write about him because he's the most difficult, personal, incredibly confusing, emotional thing for me. So he's right there kind of like deep in my id or whatever you would say. Yeah, I want, and I'm wondering why that is. I'm sure you're wondering too. You've spent all these books. Like what is it about? And I have, you know, I think we all have people like this in our life who resonate with us uh, extra, you know, like what is it about George Miles that affected you so deeply? And it's also interesting to me that somebody who had so much trouble forming relationships with other people due to his mental illness was able to form one with you. Like why? (sighs) I, you know, of course the answer is, I don't know, but I mean, um, it really, I mean, you know, like I said, the the week after I met him, we hung out for the first time, like, and we rode our bikes around, and we were, like, exploring abandoned buildings and things. And he told me he was in love with me, and we had this very deep conversation about it. And I and I, I don't think he was, but he thought he was. Or, But, I mean, I think that really impacted me because I, I think that he was, like, 
the first person I really believed really did love me because I did believe it. I think he did really love me. And I think that was huge for me. I just I believed it. I trusted it. I the way he presented his love it was a way that I could understand and trust or something. So that that was that was it. And and you know he was extremely smart. I mean he was smart and funny and weird. And so there was a lot we had in common in terms of um, interests. And then I don't know. I mean there. Um, you know, I mean, it's like, you know, my when I used to see a therapist, they, you know, I, they said I had this really terrible caretaker problem. And, um, and and they thought it originated because my mom was like this horrible alcoholic and stuff. But I don't know. But I mean, there was this thing where I wanted to take care of him and I wanted to save him. And that was there, too. It was just like he needed somebody to be there for him. And I was going to do it. I was going to be there and I was going to help him and I was going to make him help him get better. And that was part of it, too. That makes a lot of sense. I mean, I think like yeah. just that, I mean, you talk about your mother and having a difficult relationship with her and then not having the sense maybe that um, you were lovable, you know, at that adolescent age or not having a, a clear sense of being loved and then having this person who for the first time makes you believe it, that that's something yeah. that would stay with you. And you yeah. talk about your therapist. I read that you had been in therapy and one of the things you tried to get your therapist to do was to let you talk about George Miles and you wanted uh, your therapist to give you insights about him while like kind of taking you out of it, <laughs> which right, is a right. fun, which is an interesting thing to do. It's like, I, I asked you like, you know, I asked you all these questions about George Miles. Who was he? Why was he so important to you? And here you are in therapy, basically asking your therapist the same question. <laughs> yeah, no, it's true. Yeah, no, it was it, obviously I was asking her not to, to not do her job. It was just, you know, yeah, I just thought, can't you just like, like pretend I'm like a television that's like playing a documentary or something about him? And it was she couldn't do it. You know, it was it always had to be about me. So she always would only be interested in like, well, what does this mean about you? It was very frustrating, <laughs> very, very frustrating. But but I, I understand why it just wasn't her thing. You know, she couldn't do that for me. But, yeah. but I thought, you know, here's this person who's supposed to have all this wisdom. Like your therapist is supposed to be like, you know, the big brain, you know, for you and like you're supposed to solve all your problems and everything. So I guess I just started thinking, well, maybe you can solve this problem for me. I think that's, uh, I think that's fair. You might as well try, yeah. right? You talk too about how this book is a personal, you know, you're really delving into the personal in a way that you have not in previous books. Right. And one of the things uh, I've read from you in prepping for the conversation is that you don't let emotions out all that much in fiction. Why? Like in previous fiction, I think this book you're, you're delving more into your emotional terrain with respect to George's, you know, in particular, but you just talk about previous work and why you take emotion out of it. Well, I mean, there is emotion, but it's really parsed out. I mean, I mean, I mean, um, it isn't, it isn't like, it isn't my emotion. I mean, it is my emotion because I'm that I'm the material for the books. But, but no, I know. It's just like I in the other in the other novels, I use it really strategically. It's like I know that it's a powerful thing, and I I don't want to use it up, and I want to use it in a particular moment. So, you know, like in the George Miles books, there's usually a point where the, the young character is in extreme danger, and and I want the character to the readers to feel for him, like a, or that the character is really lost and sad and whatever. But I didn't. I don't know. I just, it just it was always like a. It's always like um, 
it's like okay I, I mean I think really strategically about my writing and stuff so it's just like okay here, this has this effect and this has this effect and and I try to you know write them in that in a kind of way that organize them in such a way that they they have an effect or something which makes it sound like they're really insincere which they're not they're very sincere but but I just I'm always I, I just like think about structure and style and stuff when I'm writing because I the other stuff just comes come pouring out of me and I don't really think about it. So, so it's just, it's just, I don't think about that. Whereas in this book, the new one, it's like, I mean, I had to find a way where I could let the motion just explode out. Cause it's very, very sincere and it's very, I was very emotional writing it. And at the same time, try to control it. Usually it's like, I don't usually let that happen. Usually it's like, it's just all brain work. And then, you know, like I said, the motion, I, I put it here, I'll put it there or something. But this one, it was just like, how do I control this? emotion and make the sentences interesting and stuff i read that you wrote an entire draft or at least a significant quant, you know part of a draft uh yeah. of this book a different version that you know where you were kind of i think trying to grapple with the material and grapple with this approach and it ended up not being satisfying to you can you talk a little bit about that as part of the process yeah i, I had this idea that i that I was going to, and this partially ended up being a useful thing to do because it, it, I made me remember a ton of things I had forgotten. But I decided I was going to write a book that started when I met George, the moment I met George, and would just chronologically go through our friendship and our relationship until the point where he 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 killed himself. And um, and it was super 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 emotional. I was like really a wreck writing it, and it, and I just went through everything, and I remembered everything, and it was like not it wasn't like you know every time we talked on the phone, but it was it was like every important thing that happened, and how our relationship evolved, and how his 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 condition evolved, and things that happened like that. But then when I read it, when I I put it aside finally, I'd written almost all of it, and I a draft, and I looked at, it, and it just was dead. It was just like there was just nothing there. It was just this super boring. I don't know. The feeling just didn't come out. It was really strange. I, 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 the, I tried, I stuck too much to kind of like a strict narrative or something. And it just, it just, I just thought no one would, no one would want to read this and understandably because it's just it's a boring story. So I had to throw it out. And then I, that's when I started just like, sort of like, I'm going to, I'm going to riff on this. I'm going to riff on this. I'm going to riff on this. I'm just going to get right to the heart of it and just do all these strange things like I'm going to be Santa Claus if I want to be Santa Claus or I'm going to, you know, write a fairy tale about James Terrell's crater, whatever I needed just to sort of get in there and not worry about the, the like the, the truth, right? The truth, truth story. So, so that's what I ended up doing. But, but the, the, so that was just a kind of a waste. I did use the very beginning of it in the novel. It's then that night when, in the book, when I meet George and he's on LSD, that was the beginning of that novel. And that's, so that's absolutely true. That part. But, um, yeah, it was just too rigid. It was too rigid. I was, you know, I was sticking to, I wasn't letting it, I wasn't, um, I wasn't like, I wasn't going with my emotion. I was just like, you know, like just trying to remember everything and, and, and trying to be really accurate. And it just, did, I don't know, it just was kind of useless. Isn't it interesting how like these things that have such a deep emotional, like lifelong impact on us, like the most important stuff of our lives you sit there and you carefully try to recount it accurately on the page and you do so and then you reread it and you're like, this is boring. <laughs> yeah, I know. I know. It's terrible. And I think this is uh, a useful conversation to have for people listening who write is just, just to underscore how there's a difference between like telling yourself the story on the page of the tough stuff of your life or the stuff that you can't shake, you know? and telling it to a reader. 
like yeah. making it palatable to a reader and interesting to a reader and emotionally involving for a reader is a different project entirely. And it can be hard to get there. Um, you know, I think we all kind of come at it different yeah. from different angles. Like you had to like, and correct me if I'm wrong, but the book that I read that you have published, I mean, it's a difficult book. There's a lot of dark stuff in this book, but there, I can feel like a playfulness in the creation of it that I think kind of has to be there. Yeah. Um, and if you're just working chronologically and factually, like, is that an accurate assessment? Like maybe the, the sense of play as a creative yeah. person was absent, you know? Oh, absolutely. I mean, I mean, I don't know what, how, how it was for you with yours. It's just, I mean, you realize that, yeah, I mean, you have to give, you have to give some pleasure to the reader. And <laughs> I mean, otherwise, why are they going to bother? I mean, because they don't care about your fucking problems, you know, I mean, who cares? <laughs> Nobody cares. I mean, so, I mean, you've got to give some, yeah. So it's like, you know, I so I wanted Santa Claus to suddenly Santa Claus to give this long monologue because I thought, oh, this is actually kind of fun. I mean, the idea of Santa Claus, you know, talking to the world, <laughs> you know, and it is a goofy idea, but um, yeah. So I don't know. I mean, yeah, it, and that's why it changes its style all the time because, like, you know, I'm not going to let you get bored. It's like you get used to this and I'm going to switch completely into a new voice and a different voice and another style and just to kind of try to keep it, um, you know, so, so it doesn't wear out its welcome really. I don't I don't know. What, did you have a hard time finding the balance with yours? Yeah. And, I mean, who knows if I did. I mean, the jury's – the book hasn't been published yet, so I'll find out. <laughs> I'm going to find out whether or not I succeeded. But in its own way, it's, it's uh, kind of similar to yours. You know, it doesn't tell – a linear story it jumps around there's a lot of thinking involved you do the best you can you know it's it's kind of like the way that i feel about it is that it's very natural to want to write about these things and to want to kind of come to some kind of personal reckoning but the the big challenge is trying to make it a useful experience and a good place for a reader to be you know like that's that's what you're hoping to do and to make it resonate, even if the person reading doesn't have any kind of like common ground in terms of like shared experience, you know, and right. it's difficult to do. Did, did you did you ever feel like um, when you were trying to think about making it entertaining? I mean, which is maybe the wrong word. Did you ever feel like I'm losing I'm losing touch with what it's important to me about this? You know what I mean? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, so many times I spent like a decade yeah. struggling with the book. So, I mean, I had plenty of, yeah. I had like every possible experience of <laughs> failure with the book, but so many different versions and so many different instances where, you know, you go to bed feeling like you wrote something good and you wake up in the morning and reread it and just go, oh, <laughs> <laughs> yes, yes, yes. <laughs> so I want to ask you about, it's a, it's a question that is interesting to me uh, with regard to the bond that you feel with George is the way in which a person's sense of connection with somebody can possibly grow in their absence, you know, in uh, like after they die. Uh, you had this very powerful bond with George while he was here in your youth. But I'm wondering like how you would characterize the bond that you feel with him all these years later and all these years since he took his own life. You know, it's it's really weird, and this is a strange thing to say, but it maybe it is stronger because he's not interfering in it, and that's a terrible thing to say. But 
I mean, you know, you couldn't be around George and relax. I mean, it was always like watching out for him. And is he going to, is he going to like just suddenly act, start acting really weird? Is he going to say something really dark and horrible? Is he going to like, I don't, you never knew with him because his mood changes all changed all the time. So having, having that not be present, I mean, I can actually think about him, you know, and I can actually, you know, so so, yeah, I mean, in some ways it is. I mean, it's like, but it's but it's also unfair because it's just me. It's like I'm exploiting him now. It's like because he's not here. And and I, I'm aware of that. And, <clears throat> and I'm trying to be fair to him. You know, I always try to try to be fair to him. So, yeah, I guess so. I mean, I don't know. But I mean, for instance, I wrote the cycle books, four of the five of them, thinking he was alive. So, right, right. You know, and I'm thinking he would read them and that we would talk about them. So, And this is a guy who who's i guess you said it like other people could recognize the beauty in him to a degree right. but it was hard for a lot of people to relate to him or at least to stay in relation to him because of his illness yeah um you had i mean for lack of a better way of putting it it sounds like you had a higher tolerance um like you had a capacity to stay with him and be with him as he was that exceeded most other people's and yeah. this is like i think this has been noted by a lot of critics through the years there there's a contradiction in the fact that he has been your creative muse and has served as the inspiration for all of this writing. And yet there weren't a lot of people in the grand scheme of things who were really uh, anywhere near as deeply impacted by him as you were. Like right. he, he didn't leave a huge mark on a lot of people's lives during his time here, but he certainly left one on yours and you've built this, this huge creative library essentially trying to memorialize yeah. him yeah i mean i i mean he had a really big impact on his family but i i think it was an extremely really terrible impact you know i mean i talked to his mother after i found out he died and it was very very difficult <laughs> she was just completely beside herself but um but yeah no i think so i mean i i got back in touch with my oldest friend a few years ago after not seeing him for 30 years, not talking for 30 years, and we got in touch, and originally, and one of the impetus of it was to actually, I wanted to talk about George with someone who knew George, because he, he knew George very well. And, but he was just like, oh yeah, George was weird. You know, that's like, it's, it's totally, <laughs> I, 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 I tried to talk about him, he'd say like, yeah, yeah, you know, I don't know. Because we, I had been, I was with this group of friends, and George was part of the group of friends and George got more and more and more depressed and he started being like a real drag to be around. And he was, I mean, I know, but I kept insisting to bring him to everything because it was good for him and because it meant something to him, even though he would just sit and stare. And at a certain point they all were, I was told, taken aside and said, we do not bring George anymore. I'm sorry he's depressed, but don't bring him anymore to our things. You know. And, um, you know, and so I was talking to my friend about that and he's like, yeah, he, he was really a pain in the ass, you know, it's just, that's basically it. So they didn't really understand. He's like, I didn't really ever understand your thing with George. I still don't. So, you know, so they didn't see it. I mean, they just thought he was kind of a weird kid and he had a lot of problems and it wasn't worth knowing him. So, okay. So yeah, this is interesting because <laughs> it, I share in, I share like, uh, or it's making me think of a question I often ask myself, not only about myself, but just about writers in general. Where it's like, wow, you know, I can spend years of my life trying to like untangle, uh, you know, a ball of yarn, essentially, just fixated on something. 
or not just not just one thing either, lots of things. And I sometimes wonder, is like, I guess this is what writers are. We're the people who are like deeply affected by things that other people are like, oh yeah, he was weird. <laughs> and like to you, he's this like infinite puzzle, you know, and maybe that's the role we play. Like we are, are the ones who get fixated and sit there and, and make uh, our lives about trying to put the puzzle together or something. But you know what I'm talking about? Like, it's I know like... exactly what you're talking about. I know. I, I totally understand that. Yeah. <laughs> I, but I wonder like, I guess there's, probably no definitive answer but it's like are we crazy for being so fixated and is it like a saner approach to just be like oh yeah or are these people just not looking or seeing clearly you know what i'm saying like that's what i sometimes wonder like am i just have i just wasted a bunch of energy on something that everybody else figured out <laughs> i just think that's the way i mean that's how writers get their fuel it's like i have a lot of friends who are filmmakers and dancers and make theater and stuff and they they don't think the same way that writers do i mean they, they think very intently about things and they're obsessed about things and stuff but it's not what we're doing but i I mean, it's like we I don't know. I'm sure you're the same. It's just like I, I mean, I, even when I'm on the metro here in Paris or something, I'm just always looking at things and just like absorbing things and thinking about who's that guy? That guy's interesting. Why is he like that? You know, I get really interested in all these things. And whereas other people are just like not paying any attention at all. And it's not because it's just because they're, they're thinking about something else. They might, you know, the dancers might say like, oh, he moves his leg really interesting. It's really interesting way or something. But I mean, I think there's a particular thing with writers that just the way that I don't know. The, the, the way we need to feed because we're so alone and we make everything alone and that's like obviously a unique thing being a writer i mean like i said I, I make films and i do all these other things i write theater and stuff and it's like the solitariness of writing is there's nothing like it i mean i guess if you're a painter it's like that too or something but i know i just i don't know i think we need to really just like i don't know to construct a whole world you know to construct this entire world and then like expect other people to like build it in their heads takes a lot of really thinking, a lot of really deep and complicated thinking, don't you think? Yeah, that's what I was just going to say is that it's like, listen, I'm obviously all in on this approach, but, <laughs> but it uh, it seems really painstaking, like not to diminish other art forms, but it's like, I think this is why so many people in the arts envy musicians, because it's like, wouldn't it be nice to just write like a lovely song about it <laughs> or just like a, a couple songs and then be done with it and to have like that quick to the vein artistic experience that people can easily access, but you know, there is, I think, a role, obviously, in the in the world and in the culture that needs to be played where you have people who are writerly in their temperament who sit down and, and really parse the thing. And, you know, that's certainly what you've done with uh, your experiences with George. And I'm, I'm interested to ask you, especially since this book is a little bit of a departure, but I, I'm also asking in a kind of comprehensive way, you know, like uh, thinking about your entire body of work. Like what at this stage of your life and career is your sense of your audience and readership? Uh, you know, I know you've been in communication with a lot of readers through the years, but there's that question. And then also thinking of this book as a kind of departure, what your expectations for the work were, if you had any at all, or what you were hoping for in terms of its reception. Right. Yeah, that's something I'm actually thinking about. I mean, when you have a book come out, I'm sure you know this, it's like, it's very humbling and it's very, it's very clarifying, you know, because then you're really like on the spot with your, what you do. Um, I don't know. It's, it's, I feel like I'm in such a weird place. I just, uh, 
I mean, I'm really lucky because I had these people who really passionately like what I do and um, are really interested in what I do. And they're not a huge number of people, but they're really loyal and they're really, really great. And they and the response to this book has been like maybe the best response I ever got. But at the same time, it's like and then there's like the, the whole kind of establishment or whatever. I mean, I, I don't know what I expected. I, you know, I write in the book like I want this book to reach more than just my cold audience. I mean, I say that right in the book. Well, that didn't work. <laughs> it didn't work because like all those places like the New York Times and the New York Review of Books and the New Yorker and stuff. I mean, they they continue just to totally ignore what I do. It just absolutely ignore my books. And it's very strange to me. On the one hand, it's like I didn't grow up paying attention to those places. So I don't it's not really like it's I have a goal to be viewed by them. But there's this weird part of me that's like, geez, what do I have to do? You know? Like how long do I have to be work on this stuff seriously and for them to like acknowledge that like there's I should have like a column in their fucking magazine, you know? Right. So I don't know. It's so it's weird because that that whole world doesn't pay any attention to me and just acts like I don't exist or something. But then I have these people who really like my work and I don't know who they are. I think they're just it's just like a scatter of people who are sort of weird and I don't know <laughs> I'm really grateful for it so if writers like my work I'm lucky that I have a kind of a writer's writer thing or something but so I don't know my expectations I don't know it's like it's just I I guess I I did I guess I did hope that like this would you know get a little would find people differently than uh, my other books or something and I don't think it's going to have the opportunity to because it just hasn't gotten any it didn't get out there I mean, you know, you're doing this kind thing and having me on your show and, you know, I've had other things like that. But um, I don't know. It's it's confusing to me. It's very confusing to me that, that the work is – it's very – it confuses me that, that 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 I'm so ignored by this kind of literary establishment. I just I – don't, I don't really understand it. I don't – it's weird to think that, like, I've been doing this this long and I'm still so radical or something that they just think it's – that they, they don't want to deal with it or something. Uh, but I can't, I can't figure it out. <laughs> I think it's confusing to a lot of people when I think about like books that I read for this show, for example, I'll read one and be like, my God, like so incredible. And yet that book is not getting right. any kind of embrace. And I have that experience over and over again. And then I think to myself, yeah. well, yeah. why, why? Like, is it yeah. me? Like, am I some sort, do I have some sort of strange taste or frequency vibration? And then, who who are the cultural gatekeepers and decision makers who are making like cultural embrace happen? You know, yeah, it's yeah. like that that sort of thing is where I start to get into uh, a mental tangle, you know, and try. I, I don't know what the answer is. I guess it's some combination of the ineffable and the material. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, I think sometimes case sometimes something really really terrific will will get through. You know, that's also that that's almost like a kind of fluke or something when you see a really interesting book and it actually does get does get like lauded. You know, can you think of but, one in recent memory that had that ride? I don't mean to put you on the spot, but I'm curious. Oh, well, I mean, you know, Joy Williams, but I mean, Joy Williams has been doing. I mean, I love Joy Williams, and Harold got a lot of attention, and I think it deserved. But she's Joy Williams, so I don't. She seems like she's in some kind of class by herself because she's like a god or something. I don't know. I mean, but it's strange. Like it's like you know, Tao Lin's book got a great deal of attention, you know, which is like I think it's fair because Tao's a very good writer. So, so, but I mean, then the other books that came out around the same time that were just as good didn't, and I don't know. It's like there's only uh, so much room in the culture at a time, you know, to absorb all that's 
there's so many books. There's so many movies. There's so Especially many. Especially right now. This fall has been so many books coming out. It's really been intense. Yeah. But ultimately, it doesn't matter. That's the thing, right? You know, it's like, it's really good for your ego. And I guess you could sell a few more copies at those places, like, sanction you. But in the long run, it doesn't make any difference, you know? I mean, I've been doing this... I've been writing for so long now, and, I, and I'm per- perfectly happy with how successful I am, and people respect me and stuff. And I've never had that, you know? Listen, I'm fine. Uh, yeah. So, I mean, there's no reason to really worry about that stuff too much. Right. And I think, too, like you, you hit the nail on the head. Like, there are a lot of people who really like what Dennis Cooper does. Like, in the grand scheme of things, is it like some huge number of uh, people in the global population? You know, mathematically, no, but the people who like you really yeah. like you. And that's yeah. honestly like that. That's awesome. <laughs> you know? No, I know, I know writers. I'm not going to say any names, but I know writers who are like so successful and so famous and everything. And they'll tell me they're jealous of me because I have this like cult thing. And they, they wish they, they want to have the cult thing. It, it, it seems very attractive and romantic to them, you know. And I'm like, dude, you're like making so much money. And, <laughs> right, right. And we we could switch. Based on your books and stuff. Let's, and, oh, yeah, let's, we could switch for like a year and just, uh, <laughs> you know, let you, let you take a test drive. <laughs> right, exactly. Yeah. So I want to talk a little bit about the book and its structure you know you've you've touched on it a bit but it is unique i think you know you you're doing a lot of interesting creative things from chapter to chapter or section to section and i read somewhere where you were talking about your approach to literature and the kind of books that you like as a reader and the kind of art that you like and the kind of art that you're trying to create where the reader has the experience of wondering what the thing is going to become. Uh, It's not necessarily the experience of like turning one page to the next to try to figure out like, where is this going? And you know, who's the, who's the killer or whatever, you know, might, (laughs) might uh, unfold in a more conventional narrative. But that was certainly my experience reading this book where I kept being surprised (laughs) And yeah. it, the ground kept shifting beneath my feet. You know, I think I would think I had it by the tail and then I'd get to the next chapter and all of a sudden there would be like a Santa Claus monologue, you know? Right, right. So, you know, auto fiction, you could fairly characterize certain sections of this book as auto fiction, abstract essay, um, it, you know, more conventional memoir, all this kind of stuff. Like it, it sort of all melds together. So I, I want to kind of, I guess start by asking you a little bit to talk a little bit more about those creative decisions and how, how you fit the pieces together. Yeah. I mean, I, I really like books where there's something about the writing that I, I just trust it. And then I like them to just take me all kinds of places that I don't expect, or I don't even think are going to work or I like that. You know, I mean, I like, I like things like that. I mean, like there's that movie Annette, you know that Lewis Carrick's movie. I don't know if you saw it, but it's like it's a fucking mess. It's like so full of, uh, it's got brilliant things in it and stuff that just doesn't work at all. But it's such a pleasure because it's so, because he knows what he's doing and he's trying all this stuff out and a lot of it fails, but it get, has this dazzling sort of like belief in itself. So I like that. In terms of the book, um, yeah, like I said, it's like I tried this linear approach, it didn't work, and then I just started 
when I was originally, so I, I started working on it, and I worked on it for like two years, and then I put it aside for, and I didn't look at it for four years, because I started making, I make films with Zach, my friend Zach Farley, and I, I was also making, I make these books that are animated GIF, fictions out of animated GIFs, and I got really interested in that, and I just kind of put those, so it was just kind of a mess at that point, it was just like random things, and when I came back to it, I said, oh, I see, there, I actually was making associations, and I didn't even know, realize it, so, you know, you can, so it's like when I write this, I have a part about The Heart is a Lonely Hunter, and how I always, how I related to the movie of The Heart is a Lonely Hunter, and how I wanted to write a book based on that, which is all true, and I'm like, oh, well, the guy in The Heart is a Lonely Hunter is he's Santa Claus. He wants to be Santa Claus. So there were these things happening that I didn't even really intend. So I was like, okay, I can create association there. And then I wanted to, I had a fairy tale and then I thought, okay, this Santa Claus can give the fairy tale. And so it's just started to kind of work together. All the parts started to fit together. And then I had to create new parts to sort of like to transition it. But I don't know. It was, this one was a gamble because I mean, the, the structure is really all over the place. But I had to under. I just had to have this underpinning, and one thing it just can relentlessly returns to this thing about George all the time. It's like it seems to go off in something, and then suddenly, like I get, I get obsessively returned to like, and then George killed himself, and da, 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 da. so I kind of counted on that being that kind of refrain or something. This kind of refrain running through it that that would hold it together, and just like dip, just you know weird style things I was trying to do to make it fit together. I do this thing called internal rhyming where I try to create associations in the in the books that like in this one there's the crater right there's like terrell's crater there's the my head i I talk about when i got hit on the head with an axe and that's that's true and then there's the crater in george's head that talks there's things like that that run through the book that kind of like unite the book in a funny way little little motifs i guess you'd say recurring motifs so i do that yeah like whole like i was gonna say like there's lots like the holes craters wounds disability um they definitely echo from section to section or chapter to chapter and while you mention it i I have to ask you and i'm trying to recall our first conversation from a decade ago but i I don't think i knew Uh, forgive me if i'm forgetting but i don't think i knew that your friends split your head open with an axe when you were a kid oh well, I don't run around telling people that all the time. <laughs> I feel like I would lead with that. I'd be like, hi, my name's Brad Listy. <laughs> when I was 12, somebody hit me in the head with an axe or however old you were. But that is yeah. a, I mean, talk about a, a traumatic experience and like a near-death yeah, experience. Yeah, it was intense, yeah. Yeah, no, was, I mean, the, my, my poor friend, you know, he ended up, you know, getting heavily into drugs and killing himself. And I don't think it was just because of that, but he was seriously, seriously traumatized by doing that to me and then running away and leaving me there. It's probably the worst part, but uh, yeah, no, it was it was you know just this weird accident with an axe, and you know, luckily it was rusted, and he left let go of it halfway down, so it didn't chop my head in half, and then I had to go to the hospital, and I, yeah, like I say in the book, I was like lying in bed for a really really long time, and the pain was just excruciating because they couldn't put any kind of anesthetic in your head, so it was just like you had to live with this pain, and I do I have a big uh, if you were to feel the top of my head, you would feel this I have this dip. In my head, in my it's head, like, a, like a fontanelle, like uh, they say in babies, I think, right? But I, yeah. I, I think of uh, why I'm, I'm thinking of Martin Scorsese being like a sickly child and spending time in bed. That's what, like, that, his origin story as a creative person is that he had to uh-huh. s- sit in bed and stay in the house and just kind of watched movies over and over and over again on the one channel that played them, you know, back in the day on right. early television. And so it was like those repeated viewings. That sort of cemented his love of cinema and also like gave him, I think, deeper insight into how movies work. 
But that's one story among many when I think of uh, reading about like artists and writers through the years that there was some either health scare or something that immobilized them that factored into them becoming an artist. Is that fair to say for you? I think there's something it deep. It has to deepen you to suddenly be taken off your feet and to, to be injured that badly come to have a brush with death. Right. Yeah. No, no, it's true. And I mean, and I, I write in the book, I mean, I, I was, um, yeah, I mean, I, I, and I wanted to die. I was like literally saying like, please kill me because it was so horrible. <sighs> and then I got really interested in that too. And that must've had some big effect. I got really interested in like, well, what was it, you know, like I say, I say in the novel, it's like, what does it mean that I, that I really wanted to die, but I knew I wouldn't die, but that's really what I would have really wanted to die. And, and then that's got in the, and I suppose that that turned me into a fantasist because, you know, some sort of with writing, you know, and I, even then I was writing. I mean, I, I when I was like in, t- in 10 years old, I used to make a uh, I made this uh, satirical magazine at my elementary school that was based on Mad Magazine called Flunker. And I would hand make every issue and, and I would do like 10 of them and I'd sell them to the other students. So I was always like writing and being since I was a tiny child. So so I think that probably during that, I don't remember specifically, but I'm sure that that I was thinking about writing somehow when i was even going through that head thing like how can i use this <laughs> yeah that's good it's good material i gotta say and did you do you still have copies of flunker somewhere in your files oh unfortunately i, I gave them all of my i sold them to my friends i'm sure they i'm sure they didn't realize i was going to become a famous writer right? I'm sure they didn't keep <laughs> i uh i started a newspaper in elementary school ah. with with my friends and we sold it on the playground. And one of the go. one of the defining memories of my youth is that we got in trouble for it. Oh. Uh, we got sent to the principal's office and had to like return everybody's money. And I was like, "What?" Like in retrospect, I'm like, "That was like we showed some gumption. It was creative. We were like we made a school newspaper without anybody telling us to." And I was just like, "I'm still pissed off about it." Like, what's your problem? I don't blame you. Oh well, that's cool. You did that. Yeah. So you, I totally get you. I get yeah, you. Yeah. I mean, for, like it was there from the beginning, I guess. But oh, uh, I, I also want to ask you. I mean, there's so many things we could talk about. Uh, I'll let readers discover it, you know. But I do want to ask you about uh, the section of the book involving John Wayne Gacy, the serial killer. Right. Because I was so struck by it, and and I should say too, it's about. Is it Robert Priest? Is that the guy's name? Peast, yeah. Peast, I'm sorry. So, yeah, um, Peast was his last victim, was the last victim of John Wayne Gacy, who, and maybe I should have you describe, because this is uh, something that you lived through and were interested in, but can you just give listeners like an overview of John Wayne Gacy and and how he factored into your childhood? (laughs) He was a one of the you know there were in the seventies there were a lot of big serial killers you know this is before the internet before DNA you know so there were a lot more serial killers because you could get away with it for a long time and he was one he was in Chicago and he killed teenage boys mostly and uh, I was really at a certain point when I was researching sex and violence and stuff I was really really fascinated by John Wayne Gacy. Uh, he dressed up like a clown. I think people know him for that because he was called Pogo the Clown, I believe. And he sold when he was in prison. He sold his art. He did these horrible paintings and sold them. And terrible guy. Um, but so, and I was just really interested in him because he, you know, had, had did it, and it was at a time when I was investigating these things for my work. And the last boy he killed was this boy named Robert Peast, and um, the, and he was the first boy that they found. 
it struck me because he looked he he was kind of like if I had a type that I was like attracted to when at that age, it would be the kind of Robert Peace and George Miles looked quite a bit like him. And, um, and so I began to sort of like have these sort of like weird not fantasies. I guess they were fantasies about John Wayne Gacy and like how I could save Robert Peace or what I would do if I was there, if I was Robert Peace's friend and I ended up there, what would I do? And so, and I wrote, I had, I wrote these long things out that I lost. Um, what would I do in this situation if I, if I had the power to, to wish <clears throat> that I, I could um, be there or whatever, what would I do? So that was a, you know, I go through all the different equations of what would I do? Would I save him? Would I like rape him? Let, then let him kill him? Would I, you know, what, what would I do? I don't really, <laughs> yeah. But what ends so, up in the book, and yeah. it's just, it, it struck me so strongly because it's so it was so odd and oddly affecting is that in the scene uh, or in you know the part of the book where you're imagining John Wayne Gacy and Robert Peast is that Gacy has a kind of epiphany right. <laughs> like almost like a like a spiritual experience it was so unexpected for me and yet and like strange and well, it's it was... actually true it's true actually that's in the book about him it says that and then if you ever see this terrible tv movie with brian dennehy playing joe and gacy there's a scene where he kills a boy and then looks up at the light and says light wait really <laughs> yeah that's I real i had no idea i thought I that... that up. oh my god yeah, well truth true. truth is stranger than fiction then <laughs> right because I was I was just like what and but I don't understand like this is based on John Wayne Gacy's recollections because like who would have been there to I, I I don't know it was in a book there was a there's a I can't remember what the book's called there's a pretty well known book about John Wayne Gacy's case and it's in there so maybe he confessed it or yeah well that's yeah. interesting that's that's yeah. a super super fascinating moment in the book for me it was just like oh. <laughs> Because yeah, it's, it's, like, it's sort of the last thing you would think, you know, some, some homicidal maniac, you know, pa pauses <laughs> after killing someone and has like a tender self-reflective moment or something. But it's a weird it's world, true. Dennis. It's true. Um, I also want to talk, and it's a little delicate to talk about, but, you know, your work, I think people who know you and know your work understand that it can be graphic and transgressive and violent and all that kind of stuff. Something about the depiction the very graphic and carefully detailed depiction of George Miles's suicide oh. is not something that I often see in in writing, in literature, or in film. Well, I also think in like the wider culture, I am I often bristle when someone's death is announced and they don't announce the cause of death. Uh, do you ever notice that it's like some so and so yeah. died? It's always the last thing you find out. Well, it's like, well, how did they die? It's the most natural question in the world. Yeah. Why do they withhold that? I never know. Yeah. I know that's like yeah. privacy or something, but it's like for God's sakes, at least tell us what happened. And having lost a friend to suicide, I think one of the things I appreciated about that particular aesthetic choice or creative choice that you made is that it's it's very natural and very human at least in so far as I understand, to think a lot about the details of a person's death when they take their own life. Wow. Um, maybe to a degree that exceeds other kinds of death. Right. You know, somebody dies of a heart attack, like sure, you might imagine it, but it's just, I, it's, I don't know. It felt, I was, re I was like relieved in a way almost that you went there because I was like, okay, right. this is the sort of shit that goes on in my head. Like I, 
course you're going to imagine that. But for some reason, I think people stay away from that. It's difficult stuff to, to investigate, yeah. but you just talk a little bit about making that choice. Um, yeah, that was the last thing I wrote for the book. Um, and, uh, that part, and I mostly did it because I needed, it just needed one last thing and to kind of ground it. And so I felt like I should do it. You know, I, it's hard to talk about, I guess. I mean, I, I mean, I don't know what happened. I mean, I, I talked to two people who knew him at the time and who told me what happened. And then I had to put two and two together and kind of imagine it. So I don't know. I wanted, I don't know, because I wasn't there because it's, I suppose there's a part of me that's really upset at myself that I wasn't aware of that that was happening when it happened. And um, I don't know. I wanted him to become magic. You know, I wanted to be, I wanted him to, there to be this transcendence to it or something. And I, I don't know. It's, that's a hard one to talk. It's, it, it really was, even though it's really spare and everything, it's, it was coming from some really strange place. So hmm. it's a bit hard for me to, um, I don't know. It's a bit hard for me to, to really know why why i just i just kind of sat down and wrote it and um and uh and just tried to i don't know try to be try to stick to exactly what i thought had to be there i don't know yeah that's a hard that's a hard one that part well and it's the most probably the most emotionally affecting like like necessarily and naturally the most emotionally affecting part of it but if you're writing about somebody who you are grieving who let who left in that way you know i think it makes for the from a readerly perspective i could feel it building towards yeah. that it makes some sense to me and um, well it's complicated because he's you know because i didn't see him the last whatever two years of his life but i mean one gets the feeling that like that's the thing that's the thing about george's death is like it's terrible that he killed himself and i if they had had better medications in 1987 who knows what would have happened you know right but they, but at the same time, I mean, he was just fucking miserable. I mean, he, you know, he had already, when I knew him in the eight, early 80s before this happened, he, he had given up because he had been going through this for so long. Nothing had ever worked. He was just in a terrible state. You know, he was torn into two different people that weren't even like real people. He was just, so it, there's a point of like, you know, I understand. It's like he, he had it. You know, I can't, he just, he's like, I, he just couldn't take it anymore. That he did it in his mother's house is, you know, there's a, obviously he did that as a, as an attack, but, but, um, I don't know. So it's complicated. It's like, I understand why he did it and, 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 you know, he shouldn't have had to suffer anymore. You know, I get that. So, yeah. but it's, it's hard to, so. It's also interesting to hear you talk. You've said more than once that he was kind of torn into different people. Yeah. And yet like, and you recognize that as his friend, maybe to a degree that exceeded others recognition. I'm I'm curious to know if in addition to that you saw like was that the true George those two different pieces or was there a a true George underlying all that that you felt like you had a window into Yeah that's a, that's I mean I talk about this in the novel a little bit and George was very aware of this I mean he he wasn't ever after a certain point when he got really bad in his teenage years he never was like a real person again because he it, they would give him medication that would even him out. But it wouldn't be like he was still he was medicated. He wasn't like and also this happened so young that he didn't have it. He didn't have the, the he wasn't he was never able to develop into a person, you know, 
he was he was a kid and then he got this you know when he was like 12 13 and then he was never ever of it he never ever was right again so it's like it said it was like i say in the book is like it was like these two disparate things being played at the same time and you like you know and and you put them together and it unites and it becomes this whole person but he's not a whole person he's like he's like because he wasn't, he would just he would just go from one to the other, one to the other, one to the other. And once in a while, he'd seem kind of normal, and he could have a normal conversation. But there was nobody there. So, we, but he, because we were so tight, and because we I, I, we were so close, when he before he, that happened to him, I think there was this idea that that's who he was, that little kid who was so funny and sweet and smart and you know relatively sane. <laughs> That was who he was, and I think, and I, I suppose, I somehow, I, I, I kept that as the real George, even though, you know, he was an adult later, and I think George wanted to believe that. I think George liked that I, I had known him before he became like that, and he wanted to hang on to like that's who he was, was that kid. So I think that's that's a lot of it. Yeah, that makes sense. Yeah. Well, before I let you go, I want to talk about a couple more things. First of all, I want to talk about being a writer who has a varied creative life, which sometimes happens. You know, most of the people I, I talk with on this show are sort of on a single track. You know, they're writers and that's kind of the extent of it. But as you mentioned earlier, you make films, you make GIF novels, um, you blog, you know, you, you've sort of tried and done a lot of different things. And I'm just interested to hear you talk about that and how you assess it. Uh, is it all of a piece? You know, does eat, do these different things serve different creative, um, I don't know, energies or needs or mm. desires that you might have? Like how do they all relate to one another? And just what is it like to kind of spread yourself out in that way rather than be sort of like monomaniacal in your focus? <laughs> uh, <laughs> well, I've always been like that, you know, I mean, when I was like when I was a kid and I was writing, I was also drawing and I was I built a, a theater in the attic of our house and we had put on plays and I used to have haunted houses in the basement of our house and I used to organize like carnivals in our backyard every summer. I've always been all over the place and even like you know when I became like a started being a real writer. I mean in the like in the early '80s. I mean I was running Little Caesar Press was a one man operation. I was writing you know, poems and trying to write fiction. I was writing the Beyond Baroque reading series. I was, I've always been kind of like really busy with stuff. And I, you know, I cur I collaborated with performance artists and dancers and stuff for a very long time. So it just feels really natural to me. I mean, I, I think of myself as a novelist. I think of myself as a fiction writer. I mean, I think that's, that's what I am. And, and I think that uh, once in a while that, that somehow can work with something else. I mean, yeah, but when, if I'm, if I'm curating something, that's obviously just a, a different kind of skill. I mean, the blog is like a curatorial. Like I liked, I edited Little Caesar magazine. I edited Little Caesar Press. I edited Little House in the Bowery Press. I mean, I like curating, so that's a curatorial thing. And that's separate. But, but in terms of like all the creative stuff, it's like, yeah, I think that, that I'm a writer. And then luckily, like with the films, I get to work with Jack Farley, who's very visual, so we can actually make films together. And with the gift fiction, I think of them as being. I, I write those gift fictions, even they don't look like exactly like I write my fiction. It's just that. Their gifts instead of words, so I, it feels totally natural to me, and I've never known really any other, any other way. I, I've always been like that. It's not a problem. I mean, I can do my work, and I can do all these different things, and I, I don't know. I, 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 I just have a weird energy or something. Yeah, I, but I, to me, it's like I do. I do. 
I've always jumped around, you know, I'm kind uh, of like, what do they call you? Like a generalist or something. Uh, and I don't understand how people do it otherwise. Like, how can you be so singularly focused on one thing? Aren't you interested in all these other things? Like, right, don't you, right, don't you want right. to experiment? And then I can sometimes like lament the fact that I'm not, you know, more settled into one lane you know what I'm saying? Like I could sometimes be like, yeah. oh, it must be so nice to just be completely set on this one thing and to devote all your energy to it. And to, do you ever have that feeling? No, <laughs> <laughs> no, because I don't, I've never been blocked. I don't get writer's block or creative block. I, I just, you know, if I can't write something, I'll just work on something else and then work on something else. But I've never, I've never had a problem writing novels or, you know, it's not like I need, I have ever felt like, oh, I wish I had more focus. I wish I had more drive and more, I always have those things. Right, right. <laughs> you know, I yeah. Don't, I, I don't think, I mean, I, you know, I know people can struggle and have like uh, fallow periods creatively or be stuck in a with a book, you know, like a part of it can vex you or whatever. I've had that. But sure. I think block is, I, I don't like that term. It feels a little melodramatic to me. Like you got to get to work some way. And maybe yeah. you're stuck on a certain section of a book. It's good to have something else to go focus on, whether it's another book project or it's a film project or something. Right, um, but I don't like this idea of just being blocked and stuck and in some you know state of uh, of I don't know immovable lethargy or something like that feels self indulgent you know. Yeah, yeah, I don't get it. I don't understand it. So, and wow. you've lived in Paris for how long now? I think about thirteen years now, but I still go to L.A. just less and less frequently. Okay, but. I, you know, I pick up bits and pieces about what you're up to over there. Like you have a, you know, obviously like a vibrant creative life in Paris where you're collaborating with filmmakers and you're curate. I, I like, I want to say, I see things that are happening at museums in Paris or something that you're involved with. I'm just yeah. curious to know, like, can you talk a little bit about the creative community there and how it has been to be an expatriate and to integrate yourself, you know, into a different culture as an artist and to build community there and to find avenues for your work? Before I moved here, I mean, my work, it, it, they published, my, I'm very happy that, that I have a really good publisher here and they publish all my work. So my work was known here. So I came in with that advantage because, um, and I, I, you know, that people already knew and my work was whatever respected what, or did. Whatever. What's the publisher, may I ask? Uh, Editions P-O-L. Okay. P-O-L. And, um, so I have that, and then I was already starting to work with Giselle Bien, this theater director, who I write her pieces for her. And so I was, I came in with already things to do. Um, I don't really, I hardly know any writers, and that's mostly because the most, most of the really, really good French writing isn't translated. And I don't speak French. Having lived here 13 years, I still can't read a French novel. So it's, I don't have many French friends because I, I can't, you know, I'm just like, oh, I bet you're really good, you know, but I can't. Right. I don't know. So I know mostly theater people, film people, and visual artists and stuff. It hasn't been hard. I mean, I don't have a ton of friends, but I'm not that I'm not a social person. I like I like being alone and working, and I like having close friends, a small group of close friends. It hasn't been a problem. I mean, I yeah, I mean, I do all this stuff and I do all the films and everything. And yeah, we just did a I just with Zach Farley and this woman named Sabrina Tarasov, we just made a video game, a haunted house video game that we showed at a big museum here. You walk through the haunted house video game. 
So I must, you know, it's like in, just because I was here and the museum wanted us to do something and we we're like, oh, let's make a video game. They gave us the money and we could do it. So it's, it's really fruitful for me being here. I mean, it's, um, it's definitely been a huge boon to me. Yeah. It feels like, like it. is it like a more, I've always had the sense of French culture having like a distinct appreciation for the arts that far surpasses the appreciation that we have in the States. Like I was yeah. on Twitter. I remember after, um, Jean-Paul Belmundo died. The, there oh. were clips from his funeral that were circulating right. where it was like it was like a state funeral for an actor. Oh, yeah, yeah. yeah you yeah. know, and I was like thinking to myself, like, my God, like this is a country yeah. that reveres its artists. Like America, be nice to see something similar uh, in America, but we're a long way off from that. I mean, it seems a lot more, I don't know, crass or something, the way American, the American people relate to arts and culture like in france it's like holy <laughs> yeah no if you're an artist here you know you're respected that's a totally very respectable thing to be and you know obviously there's much much greater financial support for the arts from the government here and also you know people read you know people go see things and you know i mean um you know it, I'm on the Metro all the time and people read books on the Metro. It's like, and, and not John Grisham, you know, I mean, they read interesting stuff. So it's quite nice to be in a place where people actually are interested in, and, you know, and strange films will open here and they'll be packed, you know, sold out for weeks and weeks and weeks because people are interested in it. It's nice. You should come. I, I've been, uh, okay. I spent like a, I mean, I spent, uh, what, four months in Paris when oh. I was in, when I was 24 and then I, I honeymooned there and I've been there one other time. So I think of all foreign cities, it's the one I've spent the most time in. Okay. Um, it's great. It's like, uh, I don't know. I know it's obviously, uh, it's a popular destination, but for good reason, especially for yeah. people who like the arts. It's such a beautiful place. And I, I it's nice to be someplace where you tell somebody you're a writer and they're like, Oh, it's as opposed yeah. to like, but what do you do? But like, what do you do? <laughs> it's true. It's true. It's really true. It's yeah. really true. Uh, well, I'm glad to hear it's still true, you know, because it's yeah. been a while so, since I've been there. But it's, uh, we need, it's like a, one of the last bastions where it's true, I would yeah. say. Yeah. I want to ask about the blog a little bit, because this is something that I think in the literary community that you're so well known for. Uh, you mentioned it as a curatorial exercise. Um, I think that's accurate, but it's also, and I think this is where you deserve some real credit. Um, it's a place where you celebrate so much literary art in particular, but not just literary art that otherwise might not get celebrated. <laughs> um, mm -hmm. You're very supportive of artists. And I think you, I think people love that you are paying attention to things that are existing on the periphery and also that you have good curatorial taste. Um, and this is a long project. Like this blog has been going on for a long time. I know there was that controversy where it didn't Google mess with you and take it they, down for a minute. And they, then, they killed it. No, they it, killed it. I had, to re I had to rebuild it from scratch. You did. They didn't give it back to you. They gave it back to me, but it was raw data. So I'm, I can reconstruct it, but I have to reconstruct each post that, uh, and I do it all the time. Every post has to be, I have to find the materials, I have to find the images, and I have to meticulously reconstruct it. It's not easy. Ugh. Yeah, they suck. Fuck that, It's like man. Google sucks. Man. Google yeah. Sucks. Yeah. Don't be evil, right? Wasn't that their motto? Yeah, <laughs> well, I know. Didn't, didn't work out. Yeah. No. Um, but yeah, no, it's just like, I, I, I guess I just want to like tip my cap to you for um, being yes. somebody who 
just like in a very industrious and um, long-term way has been a champion for so many out of the way books or whatever, you know, and uh, it's a, that's what I, I really, I mean, I, I, the books I'm, I support there are the books I read. I love reading that stuff. I'm, I mean, I really think it's a Renaissance in the United States of like poetry and fiction and stuff. I don't, I think there's more interesting, really exciting younger writers and newer writers now than ever, 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 ever in my life. So, so I'm just, I'm just like this super excited reader. And then I have this lucky situation where I can, I can say, you know, you guys should read this thing, and 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 it and it does seem to make some small difference. So it's cool. I mean, it's a lucky break for me. Well, that's the challenge, right? I mean, this is what we were talking about uh, a bit ago. It's like there's there's almost too much in the sense yeah. of like being a fan of books and art and wanting to, to to eat the good stuff. You know, it's like there's just it's like a it's an embarrassment of riches. But w- what also bothers me and i think it bothers you is that there's just all this great writing and people don't know about it <laughs> yeah it drives me crazy you know so yeah. i don't know yeah. i'm i'm happy that you're out there sounding the bell you know oh thanks thanks i'm trying uh last thing you you know you mentioned films uh, i want to say i read that you have a film called room temperature that you're i are you, are you going to make it or yeah yeah, we're hoping we're raising the money for it now, and it, ideally, we're going to shoot it in Southern California, um, somewhere around LA. So, yeah, I mean, if the money raising goes as hoped, we'll shoot it like February or March. Yeah, oh. so that's our that'll be our third film. And yeah, excited about it. Any, can you give us any hints as to what it's about? It's about really generally, it's about a family who turns their house into a home haunt. Into a home what? Home haunt, uh, you know, like a haunted house attraction. Oh, you know, like you know, like it's Halloween when people they 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 turn their houses or their garages or their backyards into these scary things, and then they people can walk through them. It's a family who does that, but they do it in a place where people don't know what those those things are, and, they, and so the people in the neighborhood think these people are psychotics or crazy, or but they're just building a haunted house. So it's it's basically about the, they build the haunted house. You see the haunted house. I don't want to say because there's things that happen I don't want people to know about. But it, it it gets kind of weird and scary. But it's not a horror movie. Okay. Yeah. And yeah. then um, are are there any new books in the works, or is are you just focusing on the film right now? Uh, just the film. Yeah, just the film, and um, yeah, I guess so. I guess mainly just the film for right now. I mean, I'm not a. Uh, I have vague, vague ideas about a novel, but they're, they're still really it's still in my head. Well, congrats on I wished. Uh, Thanks, and Brad. all that all that you have going, I'm thrilled to get a chance to talk with you over the transom. From it's so crazy, like a distance of what, like six thousand miles or whatever it is, and it's you sound like you're right here, you know. So, yeah, yeah. Um, I appreciate it, and I wish you well on all that you have going. Thanks, Brad. It's always really great to talk to you. Okay, that is Dennis Cooper. His new novel is called I Wished. Available from Soho Press. You can find him on the internet at dennis-cooper.net. And you can read his blog at denniscooperblog.com. Again, the book is called I Wished. Go get your copy wherever uh, books are sold. If you have anything you would like to say to me, you can email me at letters at otherppl.com. If you would like to support the show, you can do that at patreon.com slash otherpplpod. 
The Other People Podcast has its own official app. It's free. Go get it wherever apps are made available. The Other People Podcast is on YouTube. Did you know that? It has its own official YouTube channel. The entire archive is on YouTube. Go search for the podcast on YouTube, Other PPL, and hit the subscribe button. It's free. The show's official website is otherpeople.com. You can listen on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, iHeartRadio, wherever you listen to shows. On Wednesday, I'm going to be talking with Sarah Hall, author of the new novel Burnt Coat, the official November pick of the Nervous Breakdown Book Club. That's a hell of a book. And we had a great time talking. I'm excited for that one coming up in uh, just a few days on Wednesday. So stay tuned for that. Otherwise, I think I'm going to go inside, eat some food, and tuck my kids in. You know, just do dad stuff. Tend to my domestic responsibilities. Step away from the microphone and uh, focus on family. <laughs> I don't know. What can I tell you? 